Thank you for joining us for Sermons on Demand from Friendship Grace Brethren Church. We provide these videos as a way to share the pulpit messages and teachings offered at Friendship Grace Brethren Church. If you find these videos a helpful resource, please drop us a note at info at friendshipgracebrethren.com. Now open your Bibles and get ready to dig into the Word of God. Okay, let's begin. Father, thank you for all the blessings that you give us. Thank you for being so good to us. And this morning as we begin a new series on forensic faith, how to, how to uh, understand our faith and convey our faith, we trust that we would bring you glory in doing so. And that we wouldn't just know things, but we would be able to have conversations with folks around us as we've been focusing on for the last few months. Thank you for for men like Jay Warner Wallace and the uh, the the path that you took him on from atheism to being a servant of yours and and writing curriculum like this. We trust that you would continue to bless him and and those that he associates with as he continues the ministry. Thank you for all that are with us today. Thank you for all the blessings that you give us. We love you, in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, um, for those that are online, there will be quite a bit of discussion here, so I'm going to ask, make sure you have your microphones turned on here, and if you're online and you want to comment or answer a question, if you can put that in the chat box or in the comments box, we'll try to keep up with that as well. But there's a lot of interaction in this, uh, in this series. And I have put most of the questions up on, on the screen when we get to them, but there's some parts that are in the book, and now that you have your books, you'll be able to, uh, to know where we're going and, and so forth. We are in session one of Forensic Faith. A homicide detective makes the case for a more reasonable, evidential Christian faith. He starts out, I'm, I'm just going to read this first section. Um, I know you all can read as well. I'm just going to keep us going and get through it. I understand what it's like to be in the right place accidentally. As I travel to speaking engagements in cold and remote areas, I'm increasingly grateful to be born and raised in sunny Southern California where it's 75 degrees and dry nearly every day. Except today. Because they're like under snow, they got a flood, so... Jay Warner may have to change his tune here a little bit. But if you quiz me about the nature of California, you'll quickly discover that I'm not a well-informed resident. I don't know what year California was founded or how many countries, uh, counties it has. I don't know how many people live here, the exact procedure for how a bill is passed or how the state's legislature is organized. What the state bird is, the tree, flower, or motto. I can't tell you when it comes right down to it, I'm a pretty terrible Californian, given how little I know about my own state. But makes no mistake about it, I'm a Californian. I was born and raised here. When it comes to our spiritual residency, I find many people are Christians the same way I'm a Californian. They were born and raised in the church, yet are, not, uh, yet are unable to answer any of the pressing questions people might ask about Christianity. Maybe these believers had an experience that convinced them that Christianity was true. Maybe they are in the right place. 
but are not quite sure why it's the right place. Their affiliation with Christianity appears to be more like lucky accidents than informed decision. For me, that was problematic. For most of my life, I was not a believer. In fact, I was a very committed atheist. I was skeptical of people who believed something simply because they grew up a certain way or had an experience. I wasn't raised in a Christian home, and the man I re respected most, my father, was a cynical detective. He was and still is a steadfast atheist. I wasn't about to trust something I couldn't examine evidentially. It troubled me that members of every religious group seemed to give the same answers many of my Christian friends did for why they held their beliefs. From Buddhist to Mormon to Baptist, people typically offered the same responses, yet it, it isn't possible for these uh, conflicting claims about God and reality to be true. They could all be wrong, or one could be correct, but they couldn't all be correct. So I set out to investigate and test the claims of Christianity based on the evidence. Long story short, I found them to be true. Today we live in a culture that is increasingly skeptical of Christianity, perhaps even more than I was. If we want others to believe in Christianity is true, then our answers cannot sound like answers given by every other religious group. We must have answers that stand up to aggressive challenges. We must embrace the evidence for what we believe building what I call a forensic faith. So, session one, why do you believe? He's doing this in a fashion like we, we, would, like we used to build cases when I was a detective, and so he's using that terminology. So he's going to open the case file. When we as Christians share what we believe with the people we encounter, we're likely to be asked a version of, why are you a Christian? In what way have you answered that question when it's been asked of you? This is the interactive part. Have you ever been asked that question, why do you believe? I couldn't get through my life every day without knowing that Jesus is there on my side with me. Okay. Go ahead, Ann. Oop, Mike. I've examined the evidence, and I find that it's true. It's true now. Was it true when you became a believer? It was not. Yeah. I, I suspect for most of us that that would be true, that we didn't become because we become Christians because we examined the evidence. I mean, by and large, that's only a recent thing that, that apologists are doing this, right? Most of us became believers because... We were called because the Holy Spirit drew us. We were, we were called, but also, I mean, I know some people where it was a emotional thing. And sure. They realized, okay, hey, let me boil it down. Okay, yeah. it's not just. Yeah, I, I really, I really respected Billy Graham and the ministry that he had, but I suspect that of the, let's take a, let's take a number. I have no idea what the number is. Let's say ten million. Of the 10 million that were, I hate doing this, saved, how many are actually saved? The number's way less than that because it was an emotional thing. Uh, and and that's, that's a danger. Elaine, you had something else? I was saved at nine, so I'm not sure 
what category of that one? I, I definitely was not examining the evidence at nine years old. Yeah. Yeah, my, my sister just sent me a bunch of information about my mom and dad, birth certificates and all that kind of stuff. And on there was the uh, was our uh, was my dad's baptismal certificate from uh, December 1969 when when we all had just moved to Florida in July and we were baptized then in in uh, in December. And I'll confess, you know, I'm 11 years old at that time. I I was afraid as a Catholic going to Catholic school and went to confession, you know, many times a week because I was afraid of not being confessed beforehand, before I died. And I was, I was a sickly child, so, you know, death was something around the corner, I thought, for me. And, and as at 11, I was afraid not to listen to what Uncle Bernie had said. Was it an emotional response? You bet it was. Was it a genuine? I think so, but I don't know. Did I, did I study any evidence? No. No. And I suspect most people didn't. But then I think most people will need to. We certainly need to in order to prepare to talk to others. <clears throat> to uh, what degree did your answer satisfy the person you, who asked you? They ask you, you know, you're talking to your, your co-worker, why are you a Christian? And you give them your answer. How satisfied are they at your answer? Not. No, they're not satisfied. No. Now, the, the next part of that question is, how satisfied are you with the answer? I wasn't real satisfied. Apologetics has always been something I've enjoyed. I always have enjoyed figuring out how to give the right answer. Uh, I started reading apologetic stuff in high school. Um, it was one of the things that that Uncle Bernie taught me on the sly, if you will, because apologetics was not a thing that really a lot of people did, but he taught me a lot of that on the sly. I remember and was evidence that demands a verdict. Yeah. Yeah. Josh McDowell uh, and uh, and his his couple of books, uh, Evidence that Demands a Verdict and More Evidence, I think it is, mm -hmm. that demands a verdict, uh, are the are the pinnacle text for this kind of uh, and, and the you know the all the guys we've been looking at recently, whether it's Jay Warner, whether it's uh, um, Frank Turek or uh, Greg Kokel, they'll all point back to to Josh McDowell and his ministry as being kind of the catalyst for them getting an understanding of apologetics and, and how to answer the question. I think I think that I think Evidence Demands a Verdict came out in 72, I think. And uh, by by 72, 73 I had a copy. We had two or three copies in our house. Well, you had it before I did then. Yeah. <laughs> I was like a senior or something like that when I read it. it was, it's, just, it's a topic that I've always appreciated and, and, and loved. Sorry. Press too fast. So now we're going to go into, there's, we've got an 11-minute video. Some of what Jay Warner is going to say here you've seen before, but pay attention to what he says. And... Uh, then we'll, we'll continue on with our discussion afterwards.
name is Jay Warner Wallace, and I've been working in Los Angeles County as a police officer for about 25 years and as a cold case detective for about a dozen. And for a long time, I was not a believer. I was actually somebody who was not raised in a Christian environment, so my background was pretty skeptical. My father was a police officer before me. Uh, my son is now a police officer after me. And so my perspective was that I didn't really trust uh, things that were told to me unless I could vet them out evidentially. And most of the Christians I knew were not people who could make a case for what they believed. I had friends who were officers, and these officers would explain to me why I should be a Christian. But if I asked them, can you give me good reasons why I should trust what the Scripture says anyway, um, they were, for the most part, unable to help me. And as a matter of fact, the same people who could make a case for why a particular suspect should be arrested were unable to make the case for why I should trust this writing called the Bible. So I, for the most part, was not interested. And as the time progressed, I learned that uh, I could actually test the Gospels in a particular way using the skill set I had as a cold case detective to determine if these things were reliable. And that's exactly what I did. This has resulted in a book I wrote called Cold Case Christianity. And for the most part, that was my journey from skepticism and atheism to Christian theism. It was really on the basis of the reliability of those texts, the reliability of those documents. Now, in the years that followed, I started to speak locally at churches and ultimately at conferences and larger settings. And I found myself just really wanting to ask the question to my audiences, why are you guys Christians? That was really important to get an answer. Why are you folks Christians? And I was struck with an answer that really, in several categories that I thought was really interesting and it was very common. As a matter of fact, I could predict in advance for the local pastor what his congregation was going to say in terms of these answers. Why are you a Christian? The largest group of answers, the largest category, were answers that were akin to, well, I was raised as a Christian. Um, I've always been a Christian. My parents were Christians. I, I, um, this is all I've ever known. A good answer, but I was, it was interesting to me, that was the most common answer I would get in these settings. The second answer, kind of answer I would get was um, an answer based on experience. I've had some experience that I felt uh, demonstrated for me that Christianity was true, or, or God moved in some way and made himself known to me, and as a result of this experience, I believe that Christianity is true. Another good answer. Um, the third category was a category kind of similar to the second. Um, I've had an experience. Uh, I was a bad person. I was kind of a jerk before I became a Christian, and I met Jesus, and I'm not so much a jerk anymore. This, this, this transformation of one's personal life was in the third category of the kinds of responses I would get. And the fourth category of responses I would get was rather theological. An idea that I'm a Christian because God's Spirit moved in me and confirmed for me this is true. I'm a Christian because God made it so. Uh, God called me to this. All good answers. But what struck me about these answers is that uh, I had an experience as an atheist growing up in an atheistic family. My dad, his second wife, was an LDS believer, a Mormon. And he had six kids with his second wife. All of them became uh, LDS Mormon believers, Latter-day Saints. And I recognized that if I was to ask my Mormon family and friends, why are you a Mormon? They would give me the exact same answers I was getting at these talks I was doing when I would ask Christians, why are you a Christian? It turns out that the Mormon answer uh, sounded exactly the same. And so if I was to have a conversation, and if I was to offer one of the same kinds of answers that my Christian friends would offer, we'd be stuck at a stalemate. I've had an experience that demonstrates for me that Christianity is true. Well, I've had an experience that demonstrates for me that Mormonism is true. Well, God's Spirit confirmed Christianity for me. Well, God's Spirit confirmed Mormonism for me.
uh, we were stuck. We were stuck at a stalemate because in reality, there was no way to differentiate between these two kinds of answers. I recognized immediately that we need to have better answers. And I knew as I was examining Christianity and Mormonism side by side as an atheist, I recognized that I'd have to be able to figure out which of these two systems is true, given that they say opposite things about many key points. So that's where I found myself, trying to figure out how to differentiate between these systems. And could you do it on the basis of experience alone? I didn't think you could. Now, at the same time, I was starting to work with young people. And the young people I was working with as a youth pastor, I eventually became a Christian, I went to seminary, I started working as a pastor in the local church. And my young people, uh, I noticed that the very first generation of kids that I had, the first year, the, the, my graduates, my seniors, by the Christmas break of their freshman year in college, they were no longer Christians. And I thought, I am like the worst youth pastor in the history of youth pastors. And then I realized I wasn't alone. The national statistics for young people who will leave the church in the years between their you know, high school years and their college years is staggering. Uh, it's, it's, it's disappointing and some research actually suggests that what really happens is that young people check out much earlier than that. They check out while they're in junior high and high school. They just don't want their parents to know. And by the time they're out from under the, the wing of their parents in college, they are already gone. I thought, well, how do I address this issue? You know, when I, if I asked my own students, what was the reason, what, was the, what changed you? It was because they were in a hostile environment in university and had become convinced by their university instructors that Christianity was not true. I knew I had to change what I was doing. That first year as a youth pastor, I was very experiential. I mean, it was mostly music and environment, and it was experience every Sunday. And it wasn't sufficient to hold my students in place through the most challenging years they were going to face in university. I needed to change my approach. And I recognized something very, very essential to all of this. You can be an accidental Christian. In other words, you can believe that something is true without really having any evidential reason for knowing that it's true. I could, I could happen to be in the right place without knowing why it's the right place. I can be saved and trust my salvation, trust Jesus for everything, yet not know what the evidence is that would suggest why Christianity is evidentially true. And what I notice with young people is if they hold that kind of faith, an accidental faith that's not grounded in good reasoning, well, someone's going to try to reason them out of that. And often that happens. And that's something we have to consider. If you want to have a faith that is grounded, you will stand in in a time of challenge. You have to have a faith that you know is true. I'm more than just experience because you're going to encounter somebody out there who has had an experience themselves and wants to convince you that their experience is every bit as valid as yours. The other thing I noticed is that when you compare experience to evidence, you, it, there's a, a, an important distinction. Um, experience can often lead you to truth. It can. Unfortunately, though, experience can also lead you to error as it has for a lot of my family who are Mormons. They've had an experience, they, they are convinced by their experience, but they are not in the truth because they've only been convinced by their experience. Evidence has the ability to lead you to truth, but also protect you from error. And that's the advantage of taking an approach to your faith, which is evidential. Now look, we have to make a decision as a church, as a culture, that this is important for us, that this is our duty, this is what we are called to do and who we are called to be. And so let me just do a little thought experiment with you, uh, just to kind of make the point clearer. If I told you that God uh, uh, visited me yesterday in a dream, in a vision, and gave me three important things to tell you, 
you might rightly say, I'm not quite sure that's true. How do I know that God gave you three things to tell me? Well, I would say, look, I've had an experience. It's a vision. This vision was as real for me as any vision I've ever experienced. You need to trust me. This really happened. This really uh, was my vision. I don't know, Jim. I'm not quite sure I could trust you for this. Okay, that's, that's one way of making the case. What if I told it to you this way? What if I said, God came to me yesterday in the form of a human and gave me three things to tell you. And he, he had lunch with me in my backyard with three of my friends. Um, not only that, he looked over at my dry grass in Southern California and he said, you know, I can help you build an irrigation ditch for this. And we, we laid pipe in the irrigation ditch in my backyard. Then he looked at my tree and he said, you know, I can help you with a tree house for your kids. And he built this amazing tree house all in a couple of hours. It was incredible. Now, that kind of claim, the second kind of claim is very different than the first kind of claim. The first kind of claim, is based on a private vision, you could never test. You could never verify it or falsify it. You're just kind of stuck with it. But the second kind of claim, that's actually something you could test because it's grounded in an activity, in an event that took place yesterday in my backyard. You could talk to my friends. You could examine that irrigation ditch. You could look in that tree and see how cool that tree house is. In other words, you could actually attempt to falsify it or verify it. I mention this because the claims of Christianity are in the second category, not the first. We have a claim that's grounded on an event that happened in history called the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's very different than other theistic claims, like Buddhistic claims, for example. You can test our kind of claim because it's grounded in history. And that's what we ought to be doing. We ought to be seeing this, this, this examination of evidence as an act of worship. Here's what I mean by that. Um, it's not unusual for us to see worship as simply the songs we sing on church on Sunday, or it's the prayers we offer God, or it's our effort to serve in our local community, or to do a short-term or a long-term missions trip. But there's another way to worship God that is commanded in Scripture. We're to worship God with all of our heart, our soul, all of our mind. So the question becomes, well, how is it we can worship God with our mind? The time you're taking right now to consider the things of God is in fact an act of worship because you could be spending this time doing any number of other things. And that would also be a form of worship toward those other things. Instead, when we focus on why Christianity is true, we now are worshiping God with our mind. And that's what we do when we develop a forensic faith. Okay. Move into the section now, group investigation. When I ask people the question, uh, why are you a Christian, I seldom, if ever, hear someone respond, I'm a Christian because it's true. Few people seem to have taken time to investigate the evidence to determine if the claims of Christianity are true. Although intuition and experience may incline us to believe, they don't allow us to differentiate whether Christianity or any other religion is actually true. A faith that is based on experience alone, rather than grounded in objective evidence, often fails to persuade others to withstand or withstand uh, aggressive opposition. One of my chief complaints against the charismatic movement, besides it being theologically wrong, is that it's all experiential. It's not based on, on solid theological um, hermeneutics of Scripture. It's based on experience. What I've discovered over the last uh, few years is people trying to do something that Scripture 
says not to do will make the argument, but it felt good, or it, it, it was successful, in whatever the definition of successful is, and it's not necessarily in keeping with scripture, but um, we, had a, we had an incident a couple summers ago where one of our churches had, had a woman deliver the message on Sunday morning. It was during COVID and nobody was in attendance. It was just going out over, over the uh, internet. And when, when some people of the congregation were challenged that that was in violation of, of scripture, they said, but we learned so much. In other words, it's experientially permissible while it's not necessarily theologically permissible. That's just one example of that. And so the point that, that uh, Jim is making in this, uh, in this section is our experience is not evidence. It's, it, we need evidence in order to make the case properly. So let's work through that just a little bit. You'll see the questions in your, in your book. To what extent do you share the concerns raised in the video about the nature and reliability of our Christian testimony, why we believe what we believe? I think we're in a situation now in our country where Bible-believing people are not held in high esteem. They are now held in much lower esteem. It, it's, it's much cooler to be a Buddhist or a Hinduist or an atheist than it is to be a Christian. It used to be, if you wanted to get anywhere in the United States, you had to demonstrate Christianity. After all, we were founded on those principles. But no longer is that the case. If you say you're a Christian, you have knocked yourself down several pegs. And so we, in order to, to, to give the gospel, we're going to have to do better than just to say, well, I believe it. It used to hold some credibility that a pastor would stand up and say, this is what God said. It holds no credibility anymore. Being a pastor does not give you credibility anymore. There you go. But with a lot of things these days, even... If it's not their evidence, it's the wrong evidence. Right, right. Yeah, you have, to, you have to be careful of evidence. Evidence of what is what needs to be looked at. And, and, and as, as Jim is saying in the series, there is good reason to accept what Scripture tells us. We, we first were introduced to this kind of process when we did the series on resurrection by Gary Habermas. As Gary went painstakingly through the New Testament text to show why they can be trusted. And most historians from the Roman era accept the New Testament as legitimate, authentic recordings of what happened. So, and, and I'm not talking about Christian historians, I'm talking about historians. And so, that gives us some evidence of what we see and what we have now experienced. 
I think that, that the, need to, the need to see the evidence is greater and greater all the time because people are rejecting what we say. And so we have to be able to prove what we say. Why do you think it's important for each of us to be certain of the claims that Christianity, the claims of Christianity are true? I think I, I think I just I think I've already answered that. We can we need to first of all have confidence in ourselves, by, or confidence by ourselves of what God has said is true. Um, I'm always impressed by what the the disciples did after the resurrection of Jesus. You know, one of the arguments that many people make is they were just telling a bunch of stories. But as a, uh, as a detective for a long time, I never saw anybody go to jail for a lie. They, they only, you know, they, 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 would, they would confess before going to jail for a lie. The disciples, they, all, they, were, they were all tortured and killed and never changed their story. Conspiracies never work that way. The only good conspiracy is a conspiracy of one. If it's a conspiracy of two or more, somebody's given it up rather than take the punishment or die. So I think it's important that we each are satisfied in ourselves of the evidential claim so that we can have at least some sort of confidence in what we say to the folks around us. Also, I think when we're, when we're speaking to other people, if we can, you know, cite a first century historian who is not a believer mm -hmm. and says that, you know, this and that and whatever was reported and it backs up scripture, that's very helpful to us too. Absolutely. Because Buddhists and Hindus and so forth really don't have that kind of documentation. Nope. We're the only religion or worldview that does. That's correct. That's absolutely right. We need to know the evidence that supports why we believe. It, sh it doesn't necessarily change what you believe, just supports why you believe. I don't think Jay Warner is, is trying to take away from anybody the fact that they were called by God and, and the Holy Spirit drew them to, to him. That, 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 that's, that's not in question. But as you're talking to others, you need to have confidence in that what you believe is actually true. What is it that we learned in the, uh, in the Truth Project? Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? You know, that's, a, that's an important question. Is it a fairy tale that you've bought into, or is it true and you can prove it evidentially? On a scale of 1 low to 10 high, how capable do you think most Christians are of intellectually defending their Christian beliefs and why do you believe this to be the case? So let's start with a number. What's a, what's a number you all have? Three. Three? Okay. I'll be generous. Less than five. Less than five? <laughs> Somewhere in there. Two. Two? Yeah, I wrote my book two to three. <clears throat> and really, the reason for that is it's not taught. I'm fairly confident that if you go to all the other churches in Lee County this morning, we're the only ones working on this. 
I don't say that to boast. I say that how sad. That's one of the reasons I joined this church. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Why is it important for Christ followers, that's us, to be able to be articulate about the truth of Christian beliefs and practices? Because they're not going to listen to you if you can't defend it evidentially. And that's what we're called to do. Yeah, absolutely it's what we're called to do. I'm reminded of, of Paul in Athens. He needed to set the stage for them of who Jehovah God was and introduce them to who they believed was the unknown God. And so he, he laid out the evidence for them. That's what we need to do. What impact does our ability to defend Christian beliefs have on our willingness and ability to engage in dynamic dialogue with people who are not believers and answer their pressing questions about Christianity? I think it has a tremendous impact on the way we do that. Linda and I have been engaged with Steve um, for, for quite a while. And he's one that needs evidence. He's an engineer. He, he, he's not experiential in anything. He's evidential. He needs evidence. And so we've been slowly but surely giving him evidence. And I think the Lord is softening his heart because now he lets me pray for him. He even asks me to pray for him when before he would say, don't bother. So I think the Lord is doing something in his heart. Am I going to be the one that gets to harvest that? I don't know. But <clears throat> these are the kinds of engagements that you can have on a routine basis. Mary says, uh, people, if, uh, if they listen at all, are full of questions, arguments, and if we can't answer, the conversation's over. That's absolutely true. If you don't have the ability to give a cogent, evidential answer, the response is going to be, okay, thanks, bye. I'm not going to believe in the hocus-pocus. And that's true. Especially today, when in the palm of your hand, you can have all the knowledge of the world. You can look stuff up. I, mean, I remember when, when we were first married, well, a few years after, and we moved down here, Publix had a deal. When you spend so much money, you could, you could each week get a new volume of the encyclopedia. That was the greatest thing in the world to me. I loved the encyclopedia we had when I was a kid. And I loved building the encyclopedia because there's knowledge in there. I, I would find myself reading the encyclopedia. Probably easier to read the dictionary because every other book is in there. You don't have to buy a lot of books, just read the dictionary. <laughs> but getting them in the right order. Getting them in the right order is a challenge. But knowledge is something that's really, really helpful to us. And if you can't answer the question, if you can only say, yeah, well, I believe it. Or, I felt God tugging on me. Yeah, I'm telling you right now, if I'm, if I'm a non-believer, I'm running for the hills. Because that doesn't, that doesn't convince anybody of anything. So many people are because of evolution, they're materialists, they don't believe in the supernatural. So right. we have to give them hard facts. Right. What's that? Unless you listen to Coast to Coast. 
I do not. Do not. <laughs> oh, are they the ones that talk about all the extraterrestrials right, and stuff? Yeah, when I'm when I'm driving home and late at night, you know, eleven or twelve, it pops on. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> okay then. Our testimony and our reputation and our culture. What impact does our ability to defend Christian beliefs have on our testimony and reputation and culture? I can tell you now, the testimony of the church is not great in culture anymore. It used to be that we were always more respected because we were believers. Now we're less respected as believers because we've given up that territory. And we need to reestablish that we, that we, are, we are serious and we have, we have the chops to be able to answer the question. One of the reasons I showed the video last week that I did, by the way, my sister said last week that that was the uh, best video that we've seen. Um, when, when you think about all the people that are still involved in science that are Christians, who, who do they go to? Who does the media go to? Not them. One of, the, one of the, the, the best brains in the Jet Propulsion Laboratory is a committed Christian. He never gets airtime. The guy in the cubicle next to him does all the time because he's an atheist. But the guy that, the, the, and I can't remember his name all of a sudden off the top of my head, he has made more discoveries and has more peer-reviewed, approved papers than the guy next to him. But the guy next to him, who's an atheist, gets all the requests. The Christian does not. We've given up that ground. In what ways have you seen people who do not believe in Christ respond when we explain our beliefs primarily in terms of our personal experiences and then when we explain Christianity in terms of evidential truth? There's a marked difference, I think. If they trust what you say and you have delivered it well, there's a difference in how they respond. The, the evidentialists today, is, they're not going to respond to, to your experience. Experience doesn't mean anything to you. Or like Ann was talking about, those that are materialists, well, your experiences mean nothing to them. Their experience means nothing to them. It's all evidence or else you get well that's nice for you but i believe something else right yeah that's true for you but not for me which of course we know is not a good statement right because there's only one truth right i hate when people and i i hear christians doing it your truth my truth no don't do it don't ever do that don't ever say your truth my truth there's only god's truth there's only what is true How much does it concern you that the majority of young people who have been raised in the church abandon their faith during their college years and what might be done to ad address this trend? When uh, Jim was talking earlier in the video, he said he noticed that, that many of the, of the kids in junior high and high school, he used the, the, the phrase, already gone. Ken Ham wrote a book, Already Gone, and then he wrote a sequel to it, More Already Gone or something like that, where he, he documents exactly what, what Jay Warner was talking about. That because of what we teach in the school today and what we don't teach in the school today, many of our kids, if they don't have good, solid home 
theological educations. Many of our kids get into high school and in college, and they can't compete, and they give up. And that's exactly what Ken Ham writes in, in the book Already Gone. Um, we, we, have, we have given up the front of truth. And so it, it concerns me greatly about young people. You can't even... Watching cartoons with Harper, and they've got, they've got evolution in there. They've got all sorts of, of weirdness in there that you have to compete and, and you, have to, you have to overcome just to get back to zero. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, literally, I was, I don't want to say arguing, but it's always, you're always arguing with a, a three-year-old, where she's like, yeah, Daddy, millions and billions. I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> yeah. no, 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 no. And that's, you can't watch TV without that being the accepted model. Yeah. And, and I'll admit, I'm a, I'm a real staunch young earth creationist, I'll admit there are some problems with that, but I think we can overcome those problems by looking at Scripture properly. And always looking, starting with Scripture and going backwards to everything else instead of looking at what modern scientists say this week. Because what they say this week will be different next week. Rich, with the college trend, then you end up, when they get married, they never take their kids to church. Right. They don't even mention sure. Jesus in the home. Right. So, in my situation now, I am not allowed to talk to my grandchildren about Jesus. Right. So, it, it has a ripple effect. Oh, yeah. And, and, and the end result is, we have less, fewer and fewer people as, as committed Christians. So, that means that the next generation has fewer and fewer. It, 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 but here, lest we get too uh, disjointed and upset about this, Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. We have an opportunity to take back this territory. And that's why, that's why, for me, apologetics is so important to be taught in the local church. Because it has to start in the local church with everybody that's there and with their families. And it's, it's a hard job. The Apostle Peter said that if uh, we are Christians, we are called to serve one another with sympathy with sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart and a humble mind. Furthermore, he said that we are called to protect the truth by being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for a hope that is in you. That make a defense is what we're talking about. What have you learned today about what is required of us uh, if we are to serve the Lord and protect the message of Christ in our culture? What changes in our beliefs and faith practices do you think are necessary to fulfill this calling? I think that's what we're doing. We're doing what we can to change one small church at a time what we believe. Now the next few questions in your book are a personal assessment for you to take on your own. I can see right now we're going to have to go faster. We're not going to get through all of this. I would appreciate if during this week you would uh, would go through, take the personal assessment, and then uh, form a strategic plan on uh, how how willing are you to learn more about what you believe, um, to embrace a more uh, rigorously uh, rigorously intellectual faith, not only for our own benefit but also for 
to help those who you come alongside. So if you will go through those sometime during this week and then uh, follow, then, then read the preamble to, <coughs> to session two, distinctive duty. And we'll pick that up again uh, next week, Lord willing. Any questions or comments this morning? No? Father, thank you for the opportunity to get a little bit more deep into, uh, into apologetics, into defending what we believe. As, as you commissioned Peter to write, we need to be ready and willing to uh, defend why we believe. Telling people that we believe just because it made us feel better is, is not a suitable response. Because what we benefit from it is not a suitable response. We believe because it's true. And we believe it's true because we have all these evidences. Help us to learn that. Help us to learn how to, uh, to understand it and to articulate it to those around us. Thank you, Father, for all the blessings that you give us. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for watching or listening to this teaching on demand from Friendship Grace Brethren Church. Please consider sending us an email at info at friendshipgracebrethren.com to let us know how this teaching may have helped you. Please also consider joining us in person at Friendship Grace Brethren Church, located at 10251 Metro Parkway, Suite 116, Fort Myers, Florida, just south of the intersection of Metro and Colonial Boulevard. Sunday school begins at 9 and worship service at 10 a.m. We look forward to seeing you in person at Friendship Grace Brethren Church.